Hey everyone, it's Avi here. I hope you're all doing well and staying safe. On today's episode of Brown Girl White Coat Pod, I will be talking to Dr. Purvi Parikh, who is an allergist and immunologist and who has been heavily involved in the COVID vaccine clinical trials as a vaccine researcher. We cover a lot of ground in this episode about the Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccines. We also talk a little bit about the AstraZeneca vaccine as well, especially how they work, their vaccine efficacy, and potential adverse reactions. We also talk about the common myths and misconceptions about these vaccines, as well as upcoming safety trials in pregnant and lactating persons and in children and in adolescents. We also spend some time talking about the new COVID variants, vaccine hesitancy and how to address it, as well as finding ways to increase vaccine equity in our communities. Because of the amount of information Dr. Barak and I cover in this episode, sadly we have skipped our usual fun segments. I promise I'll get back to those with my next episode, but this time I really just wanted to focus on the COVID vaccines since that is such an important topic right now. So here it is, this week's episode of Brown Girl White Coat Pod. I hope you guys enjoy. Hi everyone, it's Avi here. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Purvi Parikh. Dr. Parikh, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask if you could kind of give a little bit of background and introduction about yourself and how are you involved in the COVID vaccine trials? Yeah, so I'm an allergist and immunologist. So I'm in private practice, but I'm also on faculty at uh, NYU Langone. And that's how I became kind of involved in the vaccine trial. So I'm currently an investigator for the Pfizer and AstraZeneca trials. And actually, just this week, we started uh, enrolling for Sanofi phase two. So that's another another possible candidate in the future. So it's kind of a really exciting time because there's like so much innovation and research going on and, you know, in medicine in general, but it's the first time the whole kind of global community, every pharma company, every doctor, everyone's working towards the same goal. So it's really interesting and like fast paced time. Yeah, it definitely is a really exciting time when it comes to innovation and just medical advancements and everything. Obviously, it's hard that we're, you know, having to go through this during the COVID pandemic, but still very, very exciting in terms of innovation. So that's amazing. So I wanted to kind of start by talking about the mRNA vaccines. So talking mm-hmm. about Moderna and Pfizer. So for our listeners that don't really know too much about the vaccines, can you just explain how these mRNA vaccines work? And is mRNA technology new? Yeah, that's a great question. So the mRNA vaccines or messenger RNA vaccines, they basically work in a really interesting way. And I think they might become one of the, you know, vaccines of the future, you know, because of how they work. But basically what happens is that, you know, the mRNA or messenger RNA gives uh, instructions or a recipe to your immune system on how to make the spike protein of a coronavirus. And that's the thing that actually causes you know, the immune response that people have, and they that's what how your immune system makes immunity. So once that's made, your immune system kind of kicks in and makes antibodies, it gets your other cells like T cells ready to fight the real coronavirus if it ever came in contact with it. So it's really cool. It's kind of like teaching your immune system how to make immunity without actually having to get sick and suffer through it. And it's not in your body very long. The ex director of the CDC had a great analogy that I always steal from him called it's like a Snapchat message. Basically, you you get the message and then it disappears. And I think the reason why I mentioned that is because 
because I think a lot of people have fears that, oh, this is going to stay in my body forever. And but actually, most of it's gone within a week. It's half-life, as we say, medicine is only five to seven days. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason it has to be kept so cold uh, in certain instances because it's very unstable and degrades quickly. So it's not really something that's in you or circulating in you forever type of thing. So those are the two, that's the technology for the two that currently have emergency use approval, both Moderna and Pfizer. That was a great way of explaining it. And I love that analogy, by the way. (laughs) I know, I stole it. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's great. And I'm really glad that you talked about how the mRNA doesn't actually, you know, stay in your body. And also the fact that you talked about the cold storage, because that's a question that I often in practice get asked. And a lot of patients that I have actually look at it as a negative for some reason, thinking there's something wrong because you have to keep it so cold. That has nothing to do with being right or wrong. It's just the technology and to keep keep it active from my understanding. Right. I mean, and even there's a lot of medications like that too, right? right. Like there's certain ones that we have to keep in the refrigerator, but some we don't. So it's just, it's just uh, stability of different compounds, you know, so that's all that it is. Yeah. Now, can you talk a little bit about the vaccine efficacy? After how many days can you say that you have reached that full vaccine efficacy after these two mRNA vaccines? Right. So, you know, uh, it's a little bit different with depending which one you got. So with Pfizer, it's seven days after the second dose. So after the first dose, you're, you're not, you can still get sick between the two doses. And we've been seeing that happen. But uh, with Moderna, it's two weeks after the second dose. So that one, you have to wait a little bit longer for that full efficacy. So during that full period, while you're being, you know, immunized that let's say six week period, you still have to be very, very careful, you know, be cautious. And even afterwards, you do too, you can't really change your behavior yet, because we're still waiting to see if you know, you can still spread it asymptomatically, we don't know. We're waiting for that data to come out. Right, right. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up, you know, there's still the risk of getting COVID, like you mentioned, in between doses and things like that. There have been some cases that were reported of people getting the first dose, but then, you know, contracting COVID. And one thing I want to clarify is, first of all, the vaccine is not a live virus. You've already kind of talked about the mRNA, but, you know, the fact that this is actually not a part of the live virus is another big misconception about the vaccine that I wanted to clarify. You know, if you can talk a little bit more, like about this, because some people feel, did it not work for me? Or did I actually mm-hmm. get COVID from the vaccine? Right? Yeah. So yeah, we, we've had a lot of cases, actually, that people got sick with real COVID in between the two doses. And it's not that one, the vaccine gave it, as you said, but the, you know, immunity takes time to build, right? So especially if you were within that first seven day period after the first shot or 14 day period, that means you didn't have full efficacy yet. So you were you could still get sick. But that even gives more reason about why we need to get people vaccinated quickly, because sometimes just waiting for the efficacy to kick in, then you can fall ill during that time, you know, now, if you have any symptoms, like within the 36 hours after the shot, that's actually normal and expected. So if you're having like fever, muscle aches, flu like symptoms, you shouldn't panic that you're you have COVID again, especially if it was like within that first 36 hours, that's actually just your immune system processing the vaccine. And it's actually a very good sign that that's occurring. So again, you're not sick, you can't get others sick, if it's just, you know, within the day or two after the vaccine itself. So it's just an important distinction that, you know, not all fevers are basically infections, like there's so many different causes of them. So that's another important thing to remember, too. Right. Now, is one of the vaccines more likely to cause these kind of side effects or adverse reactions than another? 
Yeah, I mean, they're all kind of comparable, but Moderna did see a little bit more than the other two. But to be honest, I've been hearing it across the board, like people had very similar symptoms with both. So it really depends on the individual, because there are some people that had Moderna and barely felt anything or had very mild symptoms. And same with Pfizer, it was across the board. So if you don't have symptoms, that doesn't mean you should worry. If you do have symptoms also doesn't mean you should worry. I mean, the same thing occurs with all of the other vaccines we give. So flu vaccine, for example, I, I usually don't feel much from it at all, you know, but I have friends, family members, patients that do feel like a little rundown right after getting it. And so it really varies just like any vaccine. Right. Now, if someone happened to contract COVID in between doses, for example, how long should they wait before they get their second dose? Yeah, so if you do get COVID, uh, what we are currently recommending is to wait until you're feeling back to normal before you get that next dose. The only caveat to that is that if you receive one of these monoclonal antibody treatments, so like from Regeneron or Eli Lilly, while you're sick, then you should wait 90 days to get the vaccine just so there's no interaction. But otherwise, you know, once you've recovered and you're feeling back to normal, you know, by all means, go ahead and get your vaccine. Even if you're between doses, it's it's okay if it's delayed a little bit, just wait till you're feeling back to normal and then get the second dose. Great. And in terms of the monoclonal antibodies that you'd mentioned, had you heard anything about less efficacy with those with the new variants? Yeah, so there, there have been some reports, unfortunately, that there might be less efficacy, especially with the South African variant. So it's even more reason that, you know, we have to be very, very careful, because as these variants emerge, we would not want to be in a situation where all of these therapeutics that we've worked so hard to get developed and out in the open are no longer working. That would kind of be a very scary tragedy to have, you know, and the, the worst, worst thing is we wouldn't want to get in a situation where the vaccines aren't working as effectively. So that's another reason too, we tell people besides the transmission reason, we tell people to mask and continue to be careful is because of these variants. Right, the sooner we get people vaccinated, the better. So we got to keep rolling out the vaccine and Mm -hmm. encouraging people to actually get the vaccine when it is offered to them. Now, is there a chance that you could still catch COVID even after being fully vaccinated and you know, completing the seven to 14 days post second dose? Yes, absolutely. Because, you know, vaccines aren't meant to be a cure, you know, and or a guarantee, you can still get sick with COVID. But the most important thing is the vaccine will save your life. Because right now, death from COVID is a very real possibility for anyone of all ages of all medical problems. And then the second thing is, if you get sick, you'll be less likely to end up in the hospital or in the ICU or on a ventilator, which is also huge, because, you know, even people who recover from COVID-19 are by no means uh, back to normal, actually, majority of them, I think they said close to 75% are still having issues eight months later, nine months later. So it will protect you from all of those terrible things. So for me, I think that's reason enough. If (laughs) if it's something that will save my life, I will I will do it. Right. I mean, my understanding is with these vaccines, there were zero hospitalizations and zero deaths. Right. Correct. Right. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, zero. Exactly. And across uh, all of them, which is really exciting. Right, exactly. It is so exciting. So you you kind of already touched on this, but I just want to ask you, you know, once someone is fully vaccinated, can they stop taking all other precautions like mask wearing and social distancing? Dr. Fauci was recently on CNN and stated that two fully vaccinated persons could potentially meet with minimum risk of infection. What are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, you know, that, it was exciting that he did say that. But, you know, we can't fully let our guard down. So, yeah, I mean, these are all like glimmers of hope. And what we have to realize, another thing I stole from someone very smart is that it's not going to be a light switch flipping on. It's actually going to be like a dimmer. You know, we're going to gradually get back to normal. And so these, are, I think, are steps in the right direction. So one thing CDC announces that, you know, if you're fully vaccinated, you no longer have to quarantine if you don't have symptoms and you're not and you're exposed to someone who had COVID-19 if you've had the vaccine within the last three months. So that's huge, right? Because before that, you have to either test or quarantine or both. And then what Dr. Fauci said today about how two fully vaccinated people provide minimal risk to one another, that's also huge because many people, most of the world has been living in isolation for almost a year now, you know? So that human interaction is so key. And I know you probably agree with this too, but you know, it's just been such a big cause of anxiety because you don't want to get someone you care about sick, whether it be a parent or a family member or friend. And now at least if everybody's vaccinated, that stress is significantly less, you know, because the transmission between people is less too. But that being said, you know, we just talked about how these aren't guarantees, these vaccines. So yes, while it will significantly reduce the risk, we still have to be cautious and use common sense and be smart about things. I would argue that we should still mask and distance it with people that we don't live with, you know, because of that reason. And I think it's a small price to pay for everyone's safety overall. Right. I absolutely agree. I definitely think these are glimmers of hope and I think we're headed in the right direction. But that all being said, we still have to keep taking these precautions until we do reach herd immunity, right? Right, right. So we also touched on the variants, but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about, you know, the UK variant, South Africa, Brazil. And now, of course, there's the variants that are coming up. We've heard about the California, Ohio, and now New York Mm -hmm. variant. What can you kind of share about these variants and how they may reduce the efficacy of these vaccines? And should we be concerned? Right. You know, I think one, yes, we should be concerned whenever there is a new variant. Viruses mutating are not a a new thing, right? They mutate every two weeks. That's just how they survive. But it's only worrisome when those mutations are enough to make the virus more contagious or more deadly. And, And that's what we're seeing with these variants. And that's why we're worried. The good news is with the UK variant, which is looking like it will become the dominant variant in the US, is that currently the vaccines are pretty efficacious against it. So worrisome thing, however, is that the South African variant, even though the vaccines will work and they will hopefully prevent severe disease and death, they're not as efficacious as they are with the UK variant or with what we call the wild type virus. So that's the worrisome thing. And already Pfizer and Moderna are testing booster doses to see if that will help combat the South African variant and others. And now that others have popped up in you know, California, Ohio, New York, it's even more reason we need to be careful because the last thing we would want is that a variant were to evolve where our vaccine is completely useless against, which I'm hoping doesn't happen. Now, this isn't a reason not to get vaccinated you know, or people might say, oh, well, if I'm not going to change my behavior, why should I get vaccinated? Again, it will still save your life. It'll still keep you out of the hospital. So it will still protect you against the worst, worst possible outcomes. But, you know, Dr. Fauci also said, you know, if a virus can't replicate, it can't mutate. So that's even more reason that even after the vaccine or before you get vaccinated, we have to still keep being careful. So we're recommending the double masking. We just want to get rid of these variants as soon as possible. Right. And now speaking of the booster doses that you were talking about, is that something that's being studied? Did you say for both Pfizer and Moderna? And what Mm -hmm. kind of boosters are being studied? Are they specific to the variants per se? And how long might it take to get boosters approved? 
Right. So yeah, um, Pfizer has a booster dose where I believe they're just giving it another dose of the two previous vaccines, but that may change because everything keeps changing day to day. Moderna actually, interesting enough, is uh, testing multiple boosters. So they actually have one that's specific to the variants. They have one that is just, again, a third, basically, dose of the first two that people received. And then they have a third one that's kind of a combination from what I understand of, of both <laughs> of oh. the one that's specific to the variant that includes both the variant and the wild type virus so it'll be interesting to see what works what doesn't work you know everything in this pandemic we're learning as we go and things keep changing <laughs> every day so just take that with a grain of salt but yeah so that's that that's what we're looking at but that's another nice thing about these vaccine platforms especially mRNA vaccines because we can develop them quickly and adapt them quickly too to variants and hopefully other challenges that come along. Right. So my next question actually is, are we going to need annual COVID vaccines? Do you think that's a possibility? Right. So that that's like the million dollar question that nobody knows. Yeah. <laughs> because first, we don't even know how long the current immunity will last. Like, let's say it doesn't mutate anymore. And we don't have to update it like we do with the flu shot. We don't want we don't even know how long this will last. I think people are projecting a year at least. Yeah. But I'm hoping it's even longer than that, that we it's something more similar to let's say the pneumonia vaccine, which is every five years or tetanus head. So we'll see how it goes. But it might be yearly, it may be longer, but I'm hoping it's longer. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Hope, hoping for that as well. And then with the J&J vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson, how is it different from the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, which are mRNA based? And why is it one dose? I think they're studying a two dose series, but mm -hmm. why did they decide on the one dose? Right, right. Yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, it's a different type of technology altogether. So basically, it's something called an adenovirus vector, meaning it uses uh, adenovirus is a, the common cold virus that all of us have been exposed to and probably infected with, but they use one that's been inactivated, you know, so it, it can't make you sick with the cold or anything like that. And they also use one that our own immune systems haven't seen before or is very rare. So that way we accept it into our immune cells. So basically what that adenovirus does is it carries the genetic information about SARS-CoV-2 or coronavirus into our cells. The, the virus is like a vehicle. And then the spike protein is made that way. So that spike protein is made and then your immune system mounts the antibody response, you know, and, and interestingly enough, it, it uses your own mRNA to make that spike protein from that genetic information that comes in. Um, and then, you know, you get the same benefits with antibody responses and your T cells start to become immune to the coronavirus. And actually, so it was started, yeah, in both one dose and two doses. The AstraZeneca vaccine, which is also a similar technology, is actually a two dose vaccine. I think the, the decision on the one dose was based on efficacy that they saw, meaning, you know, it prevented severe disease really well with just the one dose, 85%. It also prevented death completely. So there's 100% of of, you know, efficacy with death, which is also huge. So th those are kind of the main endpoints. The other exciting thing too, is that we actually have tr some transmission data from this vaccine. Yeah. It shows that it can even decrease asymptomatic spread by 72%, which is huge because a big portion of the cases, right, are passed unknowingly from person to person. And if a vaccine can successfully do that, that's actually huge in getting ahead of the spread of the coronavirus. So that's why I think the decision was made to approve it as one dose 
scenarios. Uh, also, you can vaccinate so many more people. So we always look at the like lowest, most effective dose in being able to vaccinate. So that way you have more doses for the world. So even with Pfizer and Moderna, it was actually tested in, in different dosages. So Pfizer, for example, you know, was tested at a higher dose than what it is and a lower dose than what it is. So they found the lowest possible dose actually to that worked because one that minimizes side effects. And then of course, then you have more doses for everybody else. So it's actually very common for it to be studied that way, because we want to see what's best for everybody, you know. Yeah, all of this is so exciting. And the asymptomatic transmission, like you mentioned, and the fact that, you know, J&J can really decrease it is such good news. Now, my understanding is with J&J, I mean, it really looked at the variants as well versus Moderna and Pfizer, right? So the timeline's a little different because Mm -hmm. it started, maybe it started getting studied a little bit later. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, actually, it's uh, great news because, you know, the overall efficacy was like 66%, you know, which doesn't sound high. But again, with the severe disease, uh, it's 85%, which is huge, complete prevented death. But it, that those same numbers translated even in South Africa, you know, where the virus was the variant was rampant, you know, so right. still even in the hardest hit areas, it still had that same efficacy for severe disease, and also for death, and which is what we want, ultimately, because if there is a dangerous new variant, we want to make sure it still prevents those things, you know, and if once right. you throw in the asymptomatic transmission, mission, that's even better because these variants are more contagious. So if the vaccine prevents the spread of them, that's huge, you know, so I think it's it's good that we have so many different candidates. It's helpful that they're studied at different times, because then we always have a possible agent to use if God forbid something occurred, you know, some other mutant variant occurred. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> now, a couple more questions in regards to these vaccines, you know, one of the big concerns has been, well, what's actually actually in these vaccines. Now we talked about the right. vaccines, but can you talk just a little bit about other components of these vaccines for our listeners? Yeah. So, you know, the in the vaccines itself, you know, the main things that are in it are what make the vaccine work. So for messenger RNA, there's this, this synthetic mRNA in it. Again, like we said before, it's not in your body very long. It breaks down quickly. But outside of that, it is basically like sugars, salts, fats, but also, um, you know, there are certain things that help the vaccine work or preservatives that might be needed. So the, both mRNA vaccines have a chemical in it called polyethylene glycol, mm-hmm. which is in so many different things. It's in many medications already. It's in Meridol, Miralax. Yeah, it's even in some toothpaste, I'm learning. Um, So something that all of us commonly commonly use on probably a daily basis. With the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it's a little bit different. It doesn't have polyethylene glycol, but it has something called polysorbate 80. And that's actually also very commonly used. And it's already in our flu vaccines, hepatitis vaccines. So if you've had those vaccines before without any issue, you probably will have no problem with the Johnson Johnson one as well. And then outside of that, it's the same thing. It's sugar, salts, fat. There is an ethanol or like alcohol that's in the Johnson & Johnson one. That, I don't know exactly why it's in it, but a lot of vaccines and medications include that for sterilization reasons, right? Because you don't want uh, unwanted things to grow in the vaccine. So bacteria, right. fungi, etc. And that might be one of the reasons, I don't know, this is my own thoughts, why it can be stored not as cold, right? Because maybe yeah. that ethanol helps keep it sterile so that it doesn't grow other unwanted organisms. So yeah, so there's a lot. I mean, there's things that are in it, but it's nothing that any of us don't get exposed to on a daily basis. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, all the ingredients sound like things that, like you said, we get exposed to regularly. Now, in terms of adverse reactions and potential side effects, you already talked about Moderna and Pfizer's potential side effects, like feverish chills, muscle mm-hmm. aches, things like that. There were more unusual side effects that we've heard about, like COVID arm, there's lymphadenopathy, right. which is, you know, swollen lymph nodes. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? And have we heard of any similar adverse reactions with the J&J vaccine? So, you know, starting kind of with the COVID arm, you know, it's funny to me that it has this like special name because yeah. <laughs> it, it actually is not uncommon. So basically it's what we all call like a, a large local reaction. And you can actually get that from any injection. You can get COVID arm from anything. And, and we don't even know if it's an allergic reaction or an irritant reaction, but I've seen it with every vaccine. I've seen it with so many other like injectable things. And it's, yeah, it could be a delayed allergic reaction or it could just be an irritation around the vaccine site. But again, it's not anything that's dangerous or progressive is something more uh, severe like anaphylaxis or what have you. So yeah, we see it, but you know, we've also seen it with many other things. So the lymphadenopathy, that's a little bit unique, I think, to these vaccines, because normally vaccines don't make your lymph nodes swell. But again, you know, this vaccine is meant to really stimulate the immune system, Mm -hmm. and even more so than other vaccines, because this is a very deadly virus pandemic, and we want to make sure people have a robust immune response that will last. So all of our lymph nodes are filled with immune cells. So the same way you can get fever, muscle aches, things like that. This is just another sign that your immune system is working properly. So I would not panic, especially if it's in the same side where you got the vaccine, because it makes sense because once the vaccine enters your arm, it actually goes to your lymph node and your and the cells start working. So again, completely normal and I would not panic. And then with Moderna, people who've had cosmetic fillers, like, not everybody, but some had swelling of them. And again, it was something that was temporary, went away within a couple of days. Same thing with the lymph nodes and COVID. COVID arm, you know, that also goes away. But it, but it's the same concept. Basically, your immune system is turning on, inflammation is going throughout your body. And, and that's all normal, like, because we want that to occur. And fillers are something that's that are not normally in your body. So anytime you have something that your body is a foreign object, and you turn on your immune system, your immune system is going to remember the last time you had something injected and will go to that site and might cause swelling, but it's not necessarily a problem. In all cases, actually, it went away. It wasn't a permanent thing. So, so far from Johnson and Johnson, we haven't really heard any of the filler swelling. I I haven't heard anything about the lymph nodes swelling either. The arm thing, I wouldn't be surprised if that occurred because we saw that even with Pfizer too. Um, So, but as, as that vaccine gets rolled out, we'll learn even more because it'll be, you know, millions of people as opposed to thousands uh, in a clinical trial. Right. Absolutely. Now with J&J, were we seeing kind of the typical side effects like the fevers? chills, muscle aches, and things like that? Yeah, so all of those same side effects. But the interesting thing was it was to a lesser degree, you know. So, okay. you know, Moderna has slightly more, Pfizer is kind of the middle, and Johnson Johnson is a little bit less. So the side effect profile is more tolerable. But that being said, all three of those are actually even better than other vaccines that we've already been using. Uh, like the shingles vaccine, Shingrix actually has a lot more side effects than all three of the COVID-19 vaccines. So it's just to put it in perspective, so, you know, these are all normal occurrences. 
Right, right. I think it is really important to put these things into perspective because there's so much focus on these vaccines. People are like hyper vigilant to even right. the kind of thing that happens. And so it's really good and important to put these things into context. I wanted to ask you about cases of Bell's palsy. You know, when people are talking about is the vaccine causing Bell's palsy? Mm -hmm. And then if you can also just talk about more serious adverse reactions, you'd mentioned anaphylaxis, which is like life-threatening mm -hmm. shortness of breath, or even deaths. Have we seen deaths from the COVID vaccine? Right. So, you know, starting with deaths, because that obviously is the most worrisome. Right. So no, uh, none of the COVID vaccines have caused deaths, you know, and then I know people will then say, Oh, but you know, I've heard that this happened and that happened. But you have to remember that, you know, certain things happen anyway, you know, and, right. and it's, there's a very big tendency to blame it on a vaccine or whatever occurred recently, but often there's no cause and effect. So if anything happens, we then investigate it to see did something in this vaccine cause it? And the answer is no. So there, there, we have to be very careful to make those links. And the same thing with Bell's palsy, you know, yes, there were cases of Bell's palsy, but they weren't caused by the vaccine because the main thing that we look at is that is this occurring at a higher rate than normally occurs? And something like Bell's palsy is actually very common. So normally in the population, it occurs at a certain frequency. So of course, it would occur in a vaccine trial at the same frequency too, or right. in the general public. And what people also need to remember is that COVID-19 can also cause Bell's palsy. Any virus can. So if anything, you might be mitigating your chances of developing these things. And then, you know, in terms of the allergic reaction, reactions or anaphylactic reactions, that's also very important because, you know, I think the media sometimes makes things look more common than they actually are. So yes, you can be allergic to anything or have an anaphylactic reaction to anything, but it's actually very, very rare. So statistically, you're more likely to get hit by lightning than to have an anaphylactic or life-threatening reaction to a vaccine. And then JAMA, one of the big journals, did a review of the first month of data of these allergic reactions, and they found that majority of them weren't even actually allergic reactions. They just got labeled that way. They found that the incidence of allergic reactions was like 0.0003%. Very, very small. Yeah. <laughs> and even the CDC confirmed with their own analysis that of all the allergic or anaphylactic reactions that were reported in the first few months of rollout, only 10% really met the criteria for an allergy or anaphylaxis. So it's still very, very rare. Being an allergist, I treat people with very severe allergies and right. they've all, many of them have received the vaccine with no problem, you know, because there's no food product in it. There's no animal product in it. The only thing is if you're allergic to polyethylene glycol, then absolutely you should not take the vaccine. Right. But luckily, even that allergy is very rare in the general population. Right. And that was actually going to go into my next question, which is who should not take the vaccine? <laughs> yeah. So Definitely, if you're allergic to polyethylene glycol for Moderna and Pfizer, and for Johnson & Johnson, it's that polysorbate 80. But again, you would probably know if you were allergic to the polysorbate because it is in other vaccines, such as the flu vaccine and hepatitis. Um, but really, there is real no, uh, there's no real contraindication to getting this vaccine because, I mean, we're in a global pandemic, and you could argue, you know, almost anybody is at risk, you know, so... Right. For most people, we're actually advocating to get it because the benefits far outweigh the risk unless you have those specific allergies. Right. So, you know, I've been asked many times, are there certain underlying medical conditions where we shouldn't take the vaccines? I've been asked by patients with heart disease, diabetes, but really they can take this vaccine as long as they don't have, like you said, an allergy to PEG or polyethylene right. glycol. And right. the J, uh, once it's approved, as we're hoping, then the polysorbate 80. 
Right, right. And I would argue that if you have any of those conditions you mentioned, you need the vaccine more than more. anybody <laughs> yeah, else. You exactly. Because exactly. no. those are all high-risk conditions, you know, yeah. for uh, severe COVID and death from COVID. Right. And we've talked a bit about this, but other myths or misconceptions that there have been about the vaccines, you know, we've heard a lot, especially with mRNA ones, because they were approved for EUA much sooner. Mm-hmm. But for example, like DNA mm-hmm. alteration, infertility, things of that nature. What kind Mm -hmm, of myths mm -hmm. have you heard? Yeah, so I've heard a lot of myths, and I'm sure you have too, but (laughs) you know that these vaccines cause infertility. You know, that's absolutely not true. Just from personal experience, I would not have taken it. I'm of childbearing age. I'm in my 30s, plan to have children. So absolutely no link to infertility. And I'll go one step further to say that um, women who got the vaccine in the trials, some of them are pregnant now. So right. clearly it didn't cause infertility. <laughs> and yeah. then the same thing goes for pregnancy and breastfeeding women. So I know there's a concern about it being harmful. Um, if you're pregnant, um, that's also not true because the thing we worry about in pregnancy is live vaccines. Or if you're immune compromised, live vaccines have that risk of making you sick or the baby sick, but there's no live virus at all in these right. vaccines, you know? So it's actually safe. And, you know, because they're so short acting, there's very little chance of much crossing the placenta that we know of. And same with breastfeeding moms too. If anything, I would argue, like as an immunologist, you may actually be giving good immunity to your baby too, because, you know, babies rely on mom's breast milk for the first Mm -hmm. six months of life. So, you know, uh, the nice thing is Johnson and Johnson actually included lactating moms and breastfeeding moms in their trials. So, so that we have good safety data there too. So, so those things I think are, are completely unwarranted. And then as for incorporating into your DNA, you know, with the mRNA vaccines, it's like nearly impossible because again, they're not in your body long enough for this to occur. They don't go anywhere near, you know, the nucleus of the cell where your DNA is, you know, and then the same, you know, goes along with these the Johnson and Johnson vaccine or the AstraZeneca vaccine, you know, your there's material being brought into your cells, but then what that is used for is to make a spike protein that again, goes back to the surface of your cell. So it's really not even anywhere near where your DNA is or has any chance of being incorporated into your DNA. So again, a lot of these things just logically and medically don't make any sense. So so that's reassuring too um, for, for everybody. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you know with Moderna and Pfizer, for example, are there any updates on vaccine trials in pregnant and lactating persons and in kids? So for children, yes, you know, for Moderna and Pfizer, you know, age, currently trials are going on for age 12 and up. Pfizer already has an emergency approval for 16 and up, which is nice. And then after that, I know they're going to go younger than 12, but they haven't started enrolling yet for that. So we're hoping actually we can start vaccinating children by this summer, which would be huge because it would be before the next school year starts. And then in terms of pregnant women and breastfeeding women, I know there's a registry, but I don't know of any specific trials with Moderna and Pfizer. I mean, hopefully there will be because I think that's an important population to study, but we always leave them out of every trial, you know, because, you know, it's two lives then at stake and you could argue that, you know, the fetus is not giving consent and there's a lot of ethical issues with that. So it's not surprising. So Johnson & Johnson, I know they included breastfeeding and lactating women. I'm not sure what they did with pregnant women, I have a feeling they were still excluded from those trials. And Johnson Johnson, I haven't heard anything yet about pediatric studies. We'll see what comes down the pipeline. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, definitely all sounds pretty promising, especially with kids potentially starting to get vaccinated before the school year, which will be really right. helpful. What right, age right. group are, are were they talking about amongst kids? Because I've gotten a lot of questions from parents about, you know, what about my toddler? I have a mm-hmm. three year old, so I have the same question. Right. <laughs> what about the younger, younger children? Yeah, yeah. So currently, you know, 12 and up is being studied. And but they're already taking names if anybody has children who are six and up, because I think they're preparing to start that trial next. The thing about kids is their immune systems are very different at every age, because they're developing and growing, you know, in the same way their immune system is developing and growing. So a baby's immune system is totally different than a 14 year old versus a five year old. So that's why we need to have to do multiple trials for pediatrics, you know, it's not like adults, by the time you're an adult, your immune system is pretty much the same, it doesn't really change much. And and that's why usually they start with adolescents and teenagers first, because their immune systems are closest to adults and then slowly work backwards, you know, so I have a feeling, you know, toddlers and infants will probably be the last to be studied. But I think that's the safest way to proceed because you want to make sure it's okay for older kids first before jumping to like an infant or a newborn who basically don't have a very functioning immune system yet, you know, so they are saying that some of these variants may infect kids more so than the regular virus. So another reason to be careful and by, you know, people getting vaccinated, you're also protecting your child until a vaccine is available, because if everyone else in the house is vaccinated, it's less likely uh, the child will get it too, right? So it makes more of an argument for that. Right. No, absolutely. Now, I was reading about J&J potentially being less effective in persons over 60 years of age who have, say, underlying coronary artery disease. Is this true? So I don't think we have enough information uh, to say that just yet, because the same kind of conclusions were drawn about Moderna too, that, oh, is it less effective in elderly adults? But again, you you can't really say that it's like apples and oranges, you have to make sure there's enough numbers, right, of each age group to really say if it's really less effective in one versus the other. I think once the we get more information out of today, actually today's hearing at the FDA, we'll know more. But I I don't think it's again, these are all like preliminary observations, I think we'll learn more as it goes on. Just like the same token, you can't say Johnson & Johnson overall is less effective than Moderna and Pfizer until there's like a study done that compares them head to head. Right, right. Now, we talked a bit about the benefits of J&J. For example, it's a one dose versus two dose. Are there certain advantages to J&J? Or are there certain settings in which you foresee the J&J vaccine to be utilized? Yeah, you know, I think it will help get more people vaccinated quickly because it's just one shot. So you don't have, currently it takes weeks to get everybody vaccinated because there's two doses and the lag time and there'll be more doses for everyone. So if there's a hundred million doses, that's a hundred million people. So currently, what you know, if it's a hundred million doses, only 50 million people can get vaccinated from that. So that's huge. The storage part of it is also huge that it doesn't have to be kept as cold. That way you can easily, you know, have access in communities and places where there's not those deep freezers. Yeah. I think globally that also helps like from a health equity standpoint, you know, because there's certain countries that don't have the sub-zero freezers or certain areas of the world with no power or electricity. And I think it would be very unfair if only rich countries got a vaccine and others didn't. So I think there's a lot of benefit to how that vaccine is. Yeah. And ultimately, we're all connected, right? So even, you know, the focus is right now when we're talking, we're talking so much about the United States. But if you really want to have some level of normalcy, again, like if you want to travel internationally, 
personally, but then you're going to a country where people aren't getting vaccinated. Yeah. There's, still that, there, there's that risk. So it doesn't just impact us. This is something that's really impacting all of us, right? So right. vaccine equity is really important. So I agree. Johnson & Johnson is a great option to kind of get out there, especially to those countries, like you said, that don't even have access to the vaccine right now. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So there's some people who believe if they have already had COVID that they don't need to be vaccinated because they don't believe they can be reinfected. Can you speak Mm -hmm. to this a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, the short answer is, you know, that's not true. (laughs) One, we've seen cases of reinfection. And the second part that's scary, too, is they've been more severe, the ones, the cases that we have seen. So, you know, people who had COVID recovered, and they got sicker the second time. So of course, that's not good. The other thing we see, too, is that people can lose their natural immunity over time. So I personally have two or three patients that showed that they had, you know, COVID antibodies in June after they recovered from their infections, but now no longer have them at all. Or I know people with dropping antibody titers. Mm -hmm. So we found that the vaccine immune response is actually more robust and longer acting. So that's why we're recommending you even if you've had COVID-19 before to still get the vaccine. And another important part is when we talk about herd immunity and how 80%, you know, has to be immune to get it, we mean 80% have to be vaccinated. So the natural infections actually don't count in that herd immunity puzzle because we know it doesn't last as long and it's not as strong as uh, an immunity. So so that's another important piece of it, that if the people who had COVID don't get vaccinated, again, that's prolonging this pandemic and delaying that herd immunity also. Right. Now, overall, even though we've heard of cases of reinfection, I still feel like we don't hear about it enough. Do you think that cases of reinfection are being underreported? Yeah, I think so. Because people might think that it's all related to their initial illness. So maybe, maybe it is underreported. Maybe people aren't seeking medical care. You know, there's so many factors that go into it. I think cases overall are probably being underreported too. Because, you know, at least especially early on in the pandemic, when everyone was being advised to stay home and not go to the hospital, there were a lot of people who were dying at home or didn't make it to the hospital. And those people may have had COVID and they were not being counted in the total. So I think overall, there's probably underreporting across the board. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. Now, many people do think that the vaccine has been developed a little too quickly, like it's been rushed. (laughs) What do you think helps to expedite the process of creating and developing these vaccines in a safe way? So, you know, one, it really hasn't been rushed because this is a culmination of 30 plus years of work, you know, by numerous scientists and numerous countries. You know, this mRNA technology, for example, has been studied since the 1990s. It's been studied for other infectious diseases, flu. It's also been studied in multiple arenas for a very long time. So there's already phase one studies for flu vaccine, for Zika, And the last SARS pandemic, which occurred in 2003, 2004, we we gained a lot of information from that too, on how to develop a vaccine that can help us fight it too. So it's not new by any means. Some of the things that were expedited, I hope are eliminated for all clinical trials, because there was a lot of bureaucracy and delays. There's a lot of unnecessary visits that we were doing before. So for example, you would have to bring someone in just to get their consent, then you send them home, then you have to bring them again 
in again to do right. blood work and give the vaccine. Now we're able to combine all of that into one visit, which actually makes more sense. We're using technology a lot more so we can check in and monitor patients more electronically, whereas before that was not an option, you know, so there's a lot of different things that have been eliminated, but it's all kind of paperwork, bureaucracy, unnecessary hurdles that had to be done before. And I just want to make it clear, like, this isn't a full approval. This is only emergency use approval, meaning these vaccines still need to undergo all the steps that all other medications and drugs have to in this country to be fully approved. And all of these people are going to be monitored for years to come. So it's not that, okay, it's approved. Now you stop paying attention. No, all of those patients are still coming for routine visits and they will for ongoing years to come. So So I don't really think there's any shortcuts, which is good with safety or efficacy. It's just with kind of the inefficiencies of the clinical trial process. Right. You know, the vaccine rollout has been really slow in the U.S. Why do you think that is? Do you think that there's just been a lack of supply? That's been the main reason and the demand is so high. Or do you think there are other reasons to this as well? You know, I think the supply is always an issue because we knew, unfortunately, we didn't have enough doses to start with. So it's good other vaccines are being approved and more doses are made. But also, I think logistically, it's kind of been a mess (laughs) because every single state is doing something different, you know, and even amongst the same priority groups. And you and I have talked about this before. Each state is different. So, you know, (laughs) I know, for example, Connecticut was saying 75 and up was elderly, you know, whereas New York was saying 65 and up. Um, and other states were, you know, expanding much faster, you know, so there's no uniformity across the board. So that I think is a big problem. And I think just just having access, so having sites that are open 24 seven, having staff that are ready to work, you know, I know a lot of different, all the states are asking for volunteers, whether it be Arizona, New York, New Jersey, to help administer it. But you know, all of these issues should have been thought of ahead of time, in my opinion, you know, you know, like you, we knew this was coming. So it didn't catch us off guard like how the actual pandemic did. So there should have already been sites ready to go, you know, with staff, with doses, what have you. But I think that being said, it's definitely improving. And I hope it continues to improve. Do you think that we would have benefited from more of a federal vaccine rollout plan versus each state having its kind of own plan? Yeah, I mean, I I think so. I mean, there might have been some pros to that. So at least everything, everyone would have been on the same page, you know. The other nice thing about the federal involvement is that, you know, with the military involved, you know, they, they're they used to doing these large-scale operations, whereas individual departments of health may not be. And it's not saying that one is better or not, but maybe it may have been better if there was like a federal plan that worked with local states, right? Because, yeah, yeah you can't necessarily do a one-size-fits-all, right? Because rural Texas might be very different than like a city like San Francisco or New York. So I think you still have to work with the local agencies, but... But I think maybe more federal involvement would have helped and kind of, you know, having that military to assist local state FEMA to assist local state government. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, a lot of our listeners are medical students, residents, and Mm -hmm. full-fledged attendings as well. But we know um, that there's still a lot of vaccine hesitancy, even though it's improving. I think there's still, you know, more we can do. So how can we as a medical community educate our patients, community? these families about the vaccine to encourage taking it? 
Right. You know, so I think what's most effective, and this is I found in my own experience is one on one conversations, I've convinced more people that way than you know, anything that I've said in the media, any talks I've given any social media, because then you actually have a chance to understand what the other person's yeah. concerns are and fears and hear them out. And I think that helps a lot. Because, you know, we can both just stand here and say, take it. And these are all the benefits. <laughs> but until we hear why someone doesn't want to take it, and then address that specifically, it really doesn't make any headway. So I think the the best thing to do is, you know, kind of work with people and have those one on one conversations and, and one person can't do it. So I think the responsibility falls on all of us healthcare workers to, you know, talk to our family members, our patients, our loved ones, you know, and speak with them in that way. Yeah, I think that's a great way to do it is the one on one conversations. I know personally, I've had a lot of those with my patients. And it's it's really helped because it, it's good to understand why or what their concerns are. So you right. can specifically address those. So I agree with that. Now we talked about vaccine equity. And um, especially in the United States, you know, there's been mm-hmm. concern about inequity and in distribution to certain populations right. over others. So do you have any suggestions on how we can increase the vaccine equity, especially for example, in the black and Latinx communities who are often at higher risk of severe COVID? Yeah, you know, I think more resources need to be um, in those communities, you know, so you have to like meet people where they are. So vaccine sites should be more accessible there. It should be easier to sign up in those communities as well. Like, you know, every every place is totally different. So you have to kind of adapt it to that local region, you know, and do things in a way that's easy for those that region. So in one place, drive through vaccine sites might be the way to go, right? Because people are spread out, and it's just easy that way. But in other places that that obviously wouldn't work if it's a very densely populated urban environment. You need to, you know, set up sites in churches and temples and schools mm-hmm. and places within the community itself. And speaking of hesitancy, I think that's another key piece is you have to work with trusted community leaders because yeah. they'll people will trust who they know over who they don't know. So that's why people trust you and I, like our own patients trust us more than the government or even they say even more than Dr. Fauci in national polls because they know us, you know. So I think it's the same type of thing that it has to be, we have to work with community leaders and it has to make sense for that region, how the vaccine sites work or operate. And if if it's in a certain community where people work long hours, you can't be open like this in the morning or something, you know, you have to be a 24 hour site, you know, there's a lot of things to take, take into consideration. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm sure you heard about the case of Dr. Hassan Gokal, who is Mm -hmm. a Houston based physician, and he actually got fired for ensuring that vaccine vaccine doses did not go to waste. What did you think about that case? Yeah, I mean, I I thought that was a really unfortunate case, because in my eyes, I don't think he did anything wrong. And the reason being is if if we're trying to reach a goal of 80% vaccinated, right, technically, you want as many people as possible to get the vaccine. Now, I'm not advocating that, you know, people that are low priority or low risk get vaccinated before people that are high risk. But Mm -hmm. if you have doses that are going to end up in the garbage, then why not give it to those low, like anyone (laughs) over it being in the garbage, you know? And from what he's saying, at least, it sounds like he made a concerted effort to actually give it to high risk people. So it's not like he was just giving it to young, healthy people or only his family members or, you know, he he was trying his best to make sure that didn't go to waste. And he was also racing against time, it sounds like, because there's only a certain amount of time that it can be kept out. 
So I think it, it was a little extreme that, you know, there has to be charges brought against someone for just trying to vaccinate people. I think, you know, we have to use our common sense and, and see the whole picture first. You know, was there really harm done or was he just trying to help? Right. On one hand, we hear about board members of healthcare systems getting priority vaccinations when they may right. not be high risk. And over here, he was going out of his way to vaccinate people who were high risk just right, to right. this didn't go to waste. So if you're a healthcare worker, you know, say you're volunteering at one of these sites where you have access mm-hmm. to the vaccine to give to people, do you have any suggestions on ensuring that doses don't go to waste? Yeah, I mean, I think as a healthcare worker, it's hard because you can't control like how many appointments are made, you know, unless it's like your own practice or something. And you also can't control how if people show up or not, right? Because if people don't show up, what, what can you do? So it's limited. But I think the actual sites should have a system in place, either a wait list or a walk in system at the end of the day, some places actually do this, uh, where that way, if there are extra doses, they're not wasted, you know, where they have a, some type of system where they can call people who are waiting for a shot. So they're not wasted, you know, because things happen and people may not show up or appointments may not get filled. And I just think it's a tragedy to throw doses out when we're in a global pandemic and people are like fighting to get doses, you know, so, so yeah, I think something needs to be put into place. You know, I think that in with the individual healthcare worker, there's only so much they can do, but I think it's more of a uh, administrative thing that has to be done, that there has to be a backup system. Right. No, I absolutely agree with you. Do you have any last minute comments or thoughts or anything that you'd like to share with our listeners? So this I say all the time that, you know, don't be afraid of the vaccine. All of us actually should be more afraid of the virus than the vaccine itself. We've lost over half a million Americans, millions of people globally. And, you know, I think they said this is the deadliest year since World War II. So please get the vaccine. That's probably the best way I can say it. Um, I've had it. I know you've had it. Yeah, (laughs) we're practicing what we preach. (laughs) Right, exactly. Thank you so much, Dr. Farik, for taking the time to speak with us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, everyone. So that was the episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did in recording it. I was really excited to have Dr. Barak on this show. She is amazing. She has a lot of insight into the COVID vaccines. And so I was really looking forward to picking her brain on a lot of these questions. Now, we recorded this episode this past Friday when the Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccine had been presented to the FDA. And so since then, it has been approved for emergency use authorization, which is great news. So this gives us a third vaccine option here in the United States, which is definitely very exciting. I do agree with Dr. Parikh that the J&J vaccine could benefit a lot of our communities that unfortunately just don't have the capacity to hold the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines because of their cold storage requirements. Additionally, this vaccine will be really beneficial in other countries as well that may not have the same capacity that the United States and and other high-income countries do. And so I really hope to see that this vaccine finds use in other countries as well that may not have even as much access as we do, even though our access is also limited. So our goal really should be for vaccine equity, not just in the United States, but also around the world, for us to actually get back to some level of normalcy. We call it a pandemic for a reason, right? We are all affected by it. So definitely need to reach herd immunity, not just in the United 
United States. But we also have to make sure that other countries have accessibility to the vaccine as well. So there's lots more, I'm sure, to come on the COVID vaccines. But I hope that this episode gave you some insight and some clarity into the currently available ones. And as always, thank you so much for making this podcast a part of your day wherever you are.